Good morning. Great to see everyone here this morning. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to be very honest with y'all. I'm coming to you this morning very anxious-filled very nervous. It's been a very interesting week for me in preparation for this morning. And I don't know if I'm more nervous because of this message or that uh, tomorrow my bride is going to be coming from Thailand and I have to clean up the apartment. (laughs) But for those of you that were all very concerned about me, I am still okay. I have been eating well. I have been taken care of. And Kezi will be home tomorrow. Please pray for her as she travels home. As Pastor John mentioned, and as you're turning to this portion of the scriptures, uh, this morning we're going to talk about slavery. And there are so many things, so many different parts of this conversation that we could have. There are so many tangents. There's so many emphases, there's so many differences depending on time and cultures and places and languages that we could go forever this morning. And on top of that, there's an emotional weight. Because our our country is not unaware of the effects of slavery. And so... We need to approach this conversation very seriously. And we need to recognize a couple of different things. And I want to recognize a couple of different things up front. First thing I want to recognize is that I'm not going to be able to talk about everything that has to do with slavery. That is an impossible thing in an hour. It's very, very impossible. And so here's a couple of things I'm not really going to be spending a lot of time talking about this morning. First thing, I'm not going to talk a ton about the Civil War. I'm really not. The Civil War and the antebellum South and slavery that was associated with that and with colonial Europe during the 15th through the 18th centuries, 19th century, That was a very different context than the slavery that we're going to be talking about, which was slavery from the first century Roman Empire. They're similar in regards to being slavery, which if we boil down slavery to its most basic definition, it's people being owned by people, right? That's our basic definition of slavery. And apart from that, there's a lot of differences that we could get lost in the weeds. And for the sake of time, I want to focus on the New Testament and what it has to say. Second thing I'm not going to be able to talk about is that the scriptures are very full of slavery. Slavery was a very, very common thing during the writings of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's a lot to say about slavery, specifically in regards to the Old Testament. The Old Testament law talks about slavery, talks about what that looks like, and talks about some of the things, and really offers a lot of incredible, incredible ways that God works through through broken things. 
but we're not going to be able to go there this morning. That's a separate conversation. If you want to have that conversation with me, I'd like to stay late after the service and talk with you about that, because it is very interesting. But we're going to specifically be focusing on the New Testament. We're going to be focusing on, A, what does this passage say, 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, and B, what does God say as a whole about the conversation of slavery? Because if we, in our modern sense, our modern ideas of what slavery is, we have to come to the realization that the church has gotten this one wrong in the past. We need to be humbled by that. We can't say that was their fault and that was only their issue and that doesn't affect us. That still affects us today. It affects how we read our scriptures. It affects how we look at our African-American brothers and sisters. And it's very, very much a factor in today's world. We can't just push it to the past. We have to wrestle with it today. And that brings me into a third thing I want to mention. And I want to say it just so that I know that I've said it. I, I have spent a lot of time looking at this over this past week and years in the past, and I've realized and I've learned a lot of things after college and high school that I really didn't learn in high school or college, that looking back, I wish that I did. And I can study, and I can read, and I can try to figure it all out in my mind, but no matter how hard I try, there is a very serious level of detachment that I have to this conversation. And that if we're going to be honest and address an elephant in the room, a lot of us are very detached from this conversation. Slavery has existed as long as human beings have been sinners. As long as human beings have existed, people have tried to own people. But if it, most of us look back to our ancestors from different places of, in the world, and for most of us, probably Europe, not many of us can look back and think of our ancestors who were enslaved. Maybe some of you can, but I can't. I don't have that connection to this topic. And quite frankly, for us, a place to find that connection is to look to our African-American brothers and sisters. And in reality, we should be doing a lot more listening than talking about this conversation. And so I just wanted to make mention that here, that I am coming as an imperfect vessel trying to communicate the truths of God. And if I get this wrong, I pray for your grace. And it's something that we all should be learning more about because it affects us today. So we're going to be focusing on 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, and then we're going to be taking a look at the New Testament in general. But before we do that, allow me to pray for us. And as I'm praying for you guys, and I'm praying for us, I would ask that you pray for me. It's easy when we're praying and one person's praying for us to kind of sit there and be quiet and close our eyes and let our minds kind of wander. I know that I've done that many times when somebody gets up and says, let's pray. You get a few seconds to collect in your minds. I would ask you to seriously pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for wisdom for me. Pray for courage for me. Pray for God's spirit for me because I do need that this morning. So if you would bow with me, let us enter the throne room. Gracious Father, we are humbled 
by your word. God, your word is truth. Your word is life. Your word gives us the greatest message this world will ever know. But Lord, your word is hard. Even in the ministry of Jesus, disciples heard his teachings and they said, who can accept this teaching? God, your word is not written in the way that we may prefer, but your word is truth. Humble us. Continue to humble us. Give us wisdom beyond our years to understand your word. Holy Spirit, work this morning. We're all coming to this conversation from different places. Some may be sitting there saying, why talk about this? Some may be saying, why talk about race? Some may be knowing some of their heritage or where their ancestors come from. Some may not. Wherever we're at, God, prepare us for what you have to teach us this morning. Because this isn't just, this passage isn't just meant for slaves 2,000 years ago. Your word was not written to us, but it was written for us. Help us to understand it. Give me wisdom. Give me the words to say. Pray that you would work through my imperfect words to encourage and convict us where we need encouraging and convicting. Might that happen by your spirit's guidance, not by anything that I can manufacture in my own strength. Be glorified and be pleased by our worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I think it would be wise to start out by reading the passage of Scripture that we're going to be going through in its entirety. This is 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Please read the Scriptures with me. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows, while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless us with the reading of his word. A couple of things I want to mention here. If we, the, if we look at this passage, the real difficult verse for us to wrestle with, the real one that we're like, hold on, I, need to, I don't think this one sounds quite right, is verse 18. Verse 18 is the hard verse for us. If we, if, this, if we had 1 Peter here and verse 18 was removed from this and we just had 19 through 25, we would be fine. There's nothing that 19 through 25 mentions that we haven't already talked about in 1 Peter. It's a gracious thing to suffer unjustly, okay? We've talked about suffering. 
For what credit is it if you sin and are endure? Okay, so I shouldn't sin, but I, and, and I, I, there's no profit to me sinning. I already know that. And Christ left us an example. Well, we know Christ left us an example, right? And this is, and, and he committed no sin, but by his wounds we are healed. This is very Isaiah 52 and 53 language, servant song language, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We've heard a majority of this before. It's just verse 18 that we go, hold on, wait. That doesn't sound right. And so what in the world is Peter talking about? I think at this time it would be wise for us to understand when Peter is referring to slavery, what is Peter thinking about? And I mention that because I ask you the question, when you think of slavery, what do you think about it? It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but think in your head. When you think of slavery, what comes up in your mind? You might think of Harriet Tubman, a Christian woman. You might think of Sojourner Truth, another Christian woman who has, we have a memorial here in our city. You might think of Frederick Douglass, a man of God. You might think of Abraham Lincoln, again, another Christian. You might think of the Atlantic slave trade. You might think of William Wilberforce from England, who abolished slavery in England. You might think of the antebellum South, the South of the United States before the Civil War. When we think of slavery, we have a specific thing in our minds. This is African peoples taken from their land, charted across the Atlantic Ocean, where several of them died along the way, landing in a whole new place, being auctioned off and bought, and being sent to plantation, being sent to serve in a house, being sent to wherever else they would serve their master. When we think of slavery, I want us to make a distinction. We, when we think of slavery, we think of racial colonial slavery. Slavery that's based on race, slavery that's based on colonialism. Race being going to Africa or Christopher Columbus sailing the ocean blue in 1492. And and him coming to the U.S., coming to the Caribbean, meeting the tribal peoples there, and looking at them saying they don't have the same buildings we have. They don't have the same technology they have. They don't speak the same way we speak. They look like simpler folk. And then you get a quote from Christopher Columbus in his diary, and it says, and I quote, these people are a strong and simple people. They will make fine slaves. Actual quote from Christopher Columbus. We think of a slavery that's based on superior and inferior races. And this was often brought on by Europe, by England, by France, by Spain, by the U.S. That's how we think of it. It's horrible. It's heartbreaking, but it's how we think of it. That's what we know. When Peter was thinking of slavery, he wasn't thinking of colonial racial slavery. That was not in his mind. Peter was thinking of what I might make the distinction as imperial POW slavery. Allow me to explain. Who was the big empire in the time of the New Testament church? Rome, the Roman Empire. 
known for their pizza. I'm trying to give some sort of brevity here. I'm trying to not make this so, you know? I'm trying to give us a little bit of levity at times, but it is a serious topic. But the Roman Empire was supreme at the time. And the Roman Empire started out as a a city-state, a city of Rome, and expanded to cover the entirety of the Mediterranean, all the way out to the far reaches of the Middle East. And the way that ancient warfare worked, I love to be able to share history. I'm a huge history person. Whenever I get to share history, I get really excited. The students call me a nerd, though, but that's okay. But when, the way that ancient warfare worked was, was rather simple, is that you would take your army, you would go to the foreign land that you want to take into your empire, you would do battle with your enemy, you would rout your enemy, you'd cut them down when they're running away from you, you'd go to their cities, you'd siege out their cities, destroy their walls, you'd get into their cities, you'd sack it, you'd kill all the men, you'd take the women and children back with you to your land as spoils of war, and you would then sell them into slavery for your people in order to make money. Slavery is an economic tool. And so if the Roman Empire started as a small city and expanded to be one of the biggest empires, the most powerful empires in all of world history, then something we don't recognize is that a majority of the Roman Empire was slaves, was peoples that were conquered by Rome. North Africa, Egypt, the Middle East, Palestine, Israel, right? Going over to Spain and France, Gaul, England, modern-day Morocco, all the way over to ancient-day Babylon. All of those places were conquered by the Romans. All of those places lost some of their people who became slaves. And something that we forget often, if a majority of the population is slaves, more than likely, a fair amount, if not a majority of the people reading the New Testament at the time, were enslaved people. We don't recognize that. But a majority of them were the enslaved people. They were the lower class. It changes the way you read the scriptures, doesn't it? And so, knowing that, let's imagine you're in first century Rome. You become a slave. Your peoples get taken over. You go and you go back to the Roman Empire. You get transported to some random place, and you become a slave. What are your options there? You have three options, three real options. Your first option is to just say, this is my lot in life. I am going to be a slave now. You might end up in a, I'm really going to emphasize the air quotes here, better position, really emphasizing the air quotes, because all slavery is people being owned by people, right? So you can say, well, it's better or worse. Well, it's still slavery. But you might end up in a household, as a household slave, where you might end up to be able to work up the ranks, get your master to trust you, get your master to like you, and you might even be able to get to a point where you rule over a household and have some level of autonomy and freedom. Think of Joseph from the book of Genesis. That was your best.
best case scenario, really heavy on the air quotes, the worst case scenario was to be what was called a mining slave. The Romans loved their marble, marble pillars, you know what I'm talking about, big old buildings. Well, that marble didn't just pop there. That marble had to be taken out of the ground and moved there and sculpted into these pillars, into these wonderful these buildings, these temples, these, these, these palaces. And that was very dangerous work. And so the Romans quickly said, why would we kill our people doing this? Let's have the slaves do it. If you were a slave that was in an ancient mine, you were going to die, almost certainly. But this is your first option. I'm going to be a slave. Anybody I marry is going to be a slave. Any children I have will be born into slavery. Any decisions I make, I want to get through, I need to get through my master. That's option one. Option two was to buy your freedom. Now, I want to mention something, and this is very interesting here. We hear nothing in this passage of buying your freedom. But that was a possibility for slaves in the New Testament times. Peter doesn't mention it in any of his writings, but Paul does. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 20 to 23, talks about how if you were called when you believed in God, you should not feel, at, you should not feel uneasy about your location, your place, your societal place. If you're a freeman, continue to be free. And it said if you were a slave or a bondservant, don't be alarmed, but then it has a parenthesis, but if you can buy your freedom, then do so. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can write that down and look it up later. But Peter doesn't. Why doesn't Peter mention that? But Paul does. Well, look at the difference of location. Paul was writing in Corinth, a very rich metropolis place. People had a little bit more money. People had a little bit more opportunity. Peter is writing in northern Asia Minor known by the Greeks as the land of the barbarians. Not a lot of opportunity, not a lot of social mobility, and already in a system where there wasn't a lot of social mobility, they were stuck. And so this is the second option. But for the slaves in First Peter, we're going to make the suggestion, Peter doesn't mention it, it was not an option for the slaves at that time. And even then, if you could buy your freedom, very difficult to do so. You're not getting paid for your work. You're a slave. It was very hard. It wasn't impossible, but very, very hard. Your third option is when it gets interesting. First option, you're a slave. Get used to it. Second option, buy your freedom. Very hard, nearly impossible. Third option was to rebel. And this is where we get into the next couple parts of this verse, of this passage. Read with me verse 19 onward. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. More on that in a moment. We're going to pause there. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
What Peter's doing here, at least in our modern minds, and I'm going to try to explain why I don't think it's this way, but how we can be tempted to look at this is it isn't Peter saying, slaves, know your place, be property, but it's Peter wrestling with what we may think a lesser of two evils situation. Do I either remain a slave or do I rebel? Because slave rebellions happened in the Roman Empire. There were three major ones. They're called the Servile Wars. I could bore you with the details. But suffice to know is that the first two Servile Wars didn't amount to much. A couple of slaves rebelled in Sicily, the island south of Italy, the soccer ball and the boot. They rebelled. Some of you took a little bit to get that joke. You, some of you, they rebelled. They went out. They captured a couple of cities. The Romans sent their big Roman armies there. They sacked the cities. They killed the slaves. A couple of people died. No harm, no foul. The third one was a little bit more stressful for the Romans. This was led. You may, for those of you who are Roman history nerds such as myself, you may recognize the name Spartacus. Some of you may not. For the record, that is not the guy from Gladiator. We found that out. Thank you, Pastor John. But Spartacus was a slave who brought, people, who brought more slaves to a third servile war, a slave rebellion. This happened in mainland Italy. And the Roman Empire sent its soldiers to go fight Spartacus, and Spartacus beat them. This is the first time this had ever happened. The slaves actually beat the Roman military, the one that had conquered the world. And so... Spartacus said, I'm going to take my army and I'm going to march on Rome. This was in mainland Italy. I'm going to march on Rome. I'm going to sack the city. I'm going to destroy the empire from within. The Romans sent out another military and they also lost. So now the Romans are getting really nervous. Oh my gosh, they're going to take our city. They sent a third overwhelming force and that was able to defeat the rebellion, kill Spartacus, kill the slaves. Okay, dodged a bullet there, says the Roman Empire. The date of that was 73 to 71 BCE, roughly 150 years before the time of 1 Peter being written. What do we remember from roughly 150 years ago related slavery? Oh yeah, the Civil War. And how much is that a part of our minds today? The Romans, at this time, were terrified of slave rebellions. Absolutely terrified. So they were very harsh on their slaves to keep them in line. We bring that bit of knowledge, context. My time spent reading Roman history has finally paid off. We bring that to this passage The authorities over these slaves were nearly expecting the slaves to want to rebel. They were expecting them to. And we today, we might hear that and go, yeah! Stick it to them. Fight for your freedom. Peter is offering a different option. And what he's really doing is he's elevating the weight of our sin. He's showing us how bad sin is by saying, look, if you have these two options, your option is either to sin or to submit. 
You need to remember how bad sinning is. Let's think of this logistically and practically. If the slaves were to rebel and there was another slave revolt, they would have to do it by force with weapons and kill people, take over cities, kill military people. The church wasn't big at this point. The majority of people were not Christians. So every time a Christian slave thought to rebel and fight against the Roman Empire, the person that they killed didn't have a relationship with God and would not be with God for eternity, but would spend eternity separated from God. This is something we forget with warfare, with violence. Is violence isn't just me protecting myself. Violence that turns deadly is choosing someone else's life under mine. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty darn hopeful and I am pretty darn assured of where I'm going when I die. I know that if I die, I will be with Jesus. People that we may fight against, we can't say the same thing. That is a very wicked sin. If we say it from that angle, okay, this makes a little bit more sense. Now, Peter doesn't end here. He doesn't end with a lesser of two evils. He doesn't say, well, between these two choices, pick this one. But he continues, and he points us to the gospel. Let's read. Verse 21. For to this you have been called. Notice that language. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but is now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He doesn't end with the lesser of two evil. He points us to Jesus. And if we stop and we think about it, if our inclination is to choose either suffering or rebellion, and if we choose rebellion, isn't that what Peter wanted Jesus to do before he went to the cross? He said, God, you can't go and get crucified and die. That's not right. You should not do that. I will not let you do that. And Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. When we look at Jesus' sacrifice, and we know what came through Jesus' sacrifice, we say, of course Jesus should have died on the cross. When we see a purpose for the pain, we have a little bit more of a desire to go through that pain. Jesus died and suffered on the cross in the greatest injustice all of creation has ever known. The perfect Son of God taking on our sins we say, that's good. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you for that. We praise Jesus this morning for that. But when we start going through suffering, hold on, wait, there might be another option here. Do you see the discrepancy there? Do you see the issue there? We're quick to put Jesus on the cross, but we're slow to put ourselves there. When that is the exact calling, calling here. We use calling language a lot. I'm called to this. I'm not called to that. I'm called to this. 
The scriptures give us two definite places of calling. You are called to salvation in Christ, and you are called to suffer. Those are the only two callings the scriptures give us. Yet rarely when we say we're called to something, we never say we're called to suffer. When something gets hard, we say, oh, I think I might be called somewhere else. We've got to be careful with that. And then we get to Jesus' example here, a perfect example, an example that we're willing to put him there but not willing to put ourselves there. And when we recognize that, and when we recognize that God brought something amazing through Jesus' suffering, that reveals something about us, is that just as God worked evil, worked good through the evil that humanity did to Jesus, so will God work good through the evil that we go through. And when we know that, we're a lot more willing to go through the suffering. If I know that working out is going to make me stronger, I'm a lot more willing to do it. I need to do it a little bit more, but I'm a lot more willing to do it. Why would anyone work out if it's not going to benefit you? But if I know the pain is worth it and that God uses it for good, that's a whole lot more reason to suffer. And when we say, I don't want to suffer, when I say, no, this suffering isn't right, I need to get comfort, I need to get out of this suffering, we're assuming a very worldly understanding of suffering, that there's no point, that there's no reason, that nothing good comes from it, and all I need to do is get more comfortable. We don't say that, but that's the furthest point of that logic. I need to get out of this suffering because it's not going to help me. God is telling us that our suffering is something that he uses to bring good. If there's something I want you to hear this morning, it's that only God takes impossibly horrible things and brings good through them. Only God takes impossibly horrible things and brings good through them. Now, you may hear that and say, I don't, I don't know, Preston. I don't know, man. That doesn't sound right. How could God bring, what good did God bring through slavery? And that, that's a good question. That's a really good question. And the best answer that I have is to appeal to my African-American brothers and sisters. I want you to ask a question to yourself. Put yourself in the shoes of a slave. You're taken from your land, taken from your family, brought to an entirely new place, given a whole new name, a whole new identity. Harriet Tubman, that's not an African name. Frederick Douglass, that's not an African name. Your name is changed. You're submitting under this master. You might get decent conditions. You might not. And this master also tells you, oh, there's this God that I believe. This God is great. You should learn about this God. Let me ask you an actual question. Would you believe in the God of your master, the person that considers you property? Would you do that? I wouldn't. 
I would want nothing to do with that God. But if we look at the African-American church that still stands today strongly, God did bring salvation to the African peoples. God did use the yoke of slavery to bring the gospel to African-American slaves in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but if, have you ever been to an African-American church service? If you haven't, you are missing out on a level that you have no idea. You have never understood the joy and the party, the celebration, the intimacy with God that our African-American brothers and sisters have because they can look back to their ancestors who were under the yoke of slavery and saw God do something beautiful through an impossibly horrible thing as slavery. Now, I'm not saying that that was the best way to do that. I'm not saying that, I'm saying that God is sovereign over all things. I'm not saying that was God's preference, but I am saying that God uses suffering and evil to bring good into our world. And we have the benefit from that. How complicated is that, right? But we have an entire church all across this country, all across this world, of people that look different than us, that think different than us, but have the exact same spirit of God that you do. And we have benefit from that because those people love us just as much as we can love them. If we go to them, if you meet them, you will be loved. If you learn from them, sit under their teaching, the amount of African-American pastors, theologians, and historians that are brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, is unimaginable. If you want to know one of America's pastors, listen to a Tony Evans sermon. A man who sounds like he's worshiping God every time he preaches. I don't sound like that. I sound kind of grumpy sometimes. If you want to know someone that hits the scriptures hard, look up a Vody Bauckham sermon. Hits the scriptures hard. You want to know other African-American pastors? Crawford, Brian, Loritz, Eric, Mason, pastors who I've heard personally through Moody Bible Institute, amazing expositors. If you're into the, into the academic, really nitty-gritty theology, New Testament Bible professor from Wheaton College, Esau Macaulay, an amazing academic, an amazing theologian. If you want some good history, if you're a history person like me, Jamar Tisby, African-American brother in Christ, historian and political writer, you may not agree with everything he says, but we need that, right? If you want to hear from some of our African-American ladies, Jackie Hill Perry wrote an incredible book on her journey of wrestling with same-sex sexuality called Gay Girl, Good God. Amazing book. Amazing way that God works. All of that was done in the weakness of the church. All of that happened from God working through broken things and, 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 and working and advancing his kingdom in a way we never could have imagined. 
Again, I don't think that was God's preference, but it's how God worked when the church fell short in a few places in some pretty big ways. So yeah, I do think joy comes through suffering. And I think we have a very wonderful example of that in the world today. But with that, I want us to hit another conversation. And that is, what does God in the scriptures say or think about slavery as a whole? Because several people have lost their faith over this conversation. They read passages like we just read, which the passage that, I, that we just read is what I think is, it's not saying that, that slavery is a good thing, but it's saying that, that that lesser of two evils conversation isn't really a lesser of two evils. It's a good suffering like Jesus, and it's sinning. Those are the two options. And we are called to suffer like Jesus suffered, knowing that God brings good and has purpose in the sufferings that we go through. But I want us to go to another passage. Because whenever people ask, well, what does God say or think about slavery? The first book I go to, some of you may be turning there, is the book of Philemon. Turn there real quick for me. The book of Philemon. It's a very small book. Some of you may have not thought of it or thought of it for a while, but it's a very small book. It's a personal letter. It's, it's one of Paul's letters. It's right before the book of Hebrews. And the context of this passage, of this, of this letter, is that there was a believer in the town of Colossae, the Colossians, named Philemon. A believer in Christ, probably fairly wealthy. We know this because he had a slave. We only know of one. We don't know how many. The slave's name was Onesimus. And for one reason or another, we don't know exactly why, Onesimus runs away from Philemon. We don't know why. We can guess, but there's no clear indication as to why. Onesimus runs away. He goes and finds the Apostle Paul. Somewhere along the line, either before or after, he believes in Jesus. And Paul sends him back to Philemon. Whoa, hold on. That doesn't, why? That doesn't make sense. Why would Paul do that? That doesn't make sense in our minds. Well, Paul sends him back to Philemon, and he sends him with this letter, the letter that we have here. And I think it very wise to read the letter extensively. First off, it's a very short letter, so it's easy to read through. I'm going to start at verse 8, and I'm going to go to verse 20. Note again, that's like over half the letter. But please read this letter with me, because I think it illustrates and it helps us answer this question. Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Listen here. No longer 
as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. The verses I want to focus on are 16 and 17. Because those verses do something absolutely beautifully. When we think of getting rid of slavery, we think of tearing down slavery. And we ask the question, why didn't God command these people in this time to destroy slavery? Why didn't he do that? That doesn't make sense to us. God didn't do that, and there, I think, are spiritual and practical reasons for that. But instead, what he does here, he doesn't tear down the institution of slavery that's existed for as long as human history. What he does is he, instead of tearing something down, he builds up the slave. He takes Onesimus, which in Philemon's mind is a slave, is less than in some form or capacity. And Peter says, no, Onesimus is not less than you. He is your equal. You both have the same spirit of God that lives in you, that works in you, that is powerful through you. And if you are going to have him, he can't be a slave anymore. He's your brother in Christ. And if we think back to last week, talking about mutual submission of brothers and sisters, Philemon, by that logic, has to submit to Onesimus his slave. Why didn't God tell the Christians to just get rid of slavery as a whole? Well, think of it practically. Not a lot of Christians around. Very small group of people. The Roman culture accepted slavery. It was how the economy worked. The church was in no real position to get rid of slavery. It didn't have money, it didn't have power, it didn't have numbers, it didn't have authority. So it couldn't go and stand up to the Roman Empire and say, hey, Caesar, stop having slaves. It couldn't do that. It was already being persecuted. Christians were already being sent to the Colosseum and fed to lions as entertainment for wicked Roman peoples. Imagine, first, imagine Peter writing to the Christians in 1 Peter saying, I get your suffering. I know you're suffering. There's a purpose for it. You know, just, just power through. Trust in Christ. Oh, and by the way, go and remove this institution that's existed for all of human history. Just go do that. That doesn't make sense for the unique context of the Christians there. I think that if the scriptures were written in a different place, where the church had grown and did have money, power, authority, influence in the culture, that would be worded different. I think that God would say, use the gifts you have, use the things you have to advance the kingdom. But that's what he says here. Philemon couldn't change the world. 
but he could show the gospel to those around him. None of us can change the world. You can't do it on your own. But you can show the gospel to people around you. And that's exactly what Paul told Philemon to do. And that's what 1 Peter told the Christians to do. A way that I think we could sum this up is actually from, I mentioned him earlier, Esau Macaulay's book, Reading While Black. He says this, The story of Christianity does not on every page legislate slavery out of existence. We wish it did. But it doesn't. Nonetheless, the Christian narrative, our core theological principles, and our ethical imperatives create a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable. How can I or you or anybody consider a brother in Christ property and not submit to them in the way that God has called us to? Does God approve of slavery? What a foolish question. The gospel completely ruins any thought that God would ever approve of slavery. There are no better or worse peoples in the church at all. All people carry the image of God. All people deserve the same love and respect that you do. We don't deserve it because of anything we've done. We deserve it because of what God has done for us, giving us his image. That's our worth. And his image is full and equal among all peoples all over the world. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. If you are a human being, you have the full value and worth of the image of God. And any time we go against that, we are slapping the image of God in the face. So with all that being said, it's easy to go away from a sermon like this and say, yeah, God doesn't like slavery. Woohoo! That's good. But we need this to hit home for us, right? I think this hits home in a couple of ways. First off, as I said, God works through all peoples. God's image is in all peoples. And we need to love all peoples the same. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter where they're from. Secondly, God has called us to suffer. We don't like it. It hurts. It's easy perhaps for me to be on a platform and say that to you with your own sufferings and your own life. You may say, that's easy for you to say. But when we look at the scriptures, when we look at God's plan for us, God shows us a beautiful truth that God works in and through the evils that we go through every single day. Don't run away from those sufferings. It's a hard reflex to beat. Those sufferings have a purpose. God has a purpose for our sufferings. And I'll believe in that way more than I'll try to run away from suffering and say there's no point here. Only God takes horribly, horribly impossible things and brings good through them. 